I want to introduce to you our speaker this morning. Um, as you know, we don't go a lot by titles, but I want to throw out two at you that you know, I don't think you're going to respect them anymore because of it. But it's Dr. Greg Fell, who is the district superintendent of our Rocky Mountain District. For those of you who come from a different background, it's sort of like being a bishop with no authority, okay? Uh, and uh, I was just asking because he covers about 90 plus churches in places like uh, Western South Dakota, all of Wyoming, which you know is very big, um, and you always have a headwind no matter where you're going in Wyoming, and uh, in all of Colorado. Uh, more than that, he's been a, a good friend of mine since we first uh, discovered each other in Russia together on a plane uh, with a vision trip. And we both looked at each other and said, you know, some of these teams, some from this team are going to go back to Russia and minister there as missionaries, but not us, okay? So he has become, he has since moved to Colorado and then become the district superintendent. I'm talking 17 years, 19, how many? Okay, 19. So, uh, but here we just know him as Greg, all right? So Greg comes to share the word with us today. And uh, Greg, this is your pulpit. Come and do it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. Well, thank you for that golf clap. That was very underwhelming. <laughs> Uh, turn in our Father's Word, if you would, this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, I understand Pastor Jim was there two weeks ago, and I'd like to correct his theology, if you don't mind. <laughs> so, as you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want to thank Bergen Park for your part in this larger association called the Rocky Mountain District. What I do, the ministry that I do, is fully and completely supported by the churches and that's all voluntary. This church is a strong supporter in the ministry of the district. So just to give you an idea, just some of the things that you're doing, uh, just this past week, this past week I was with seven of our church planters and their wives at a conference where we're building community together. We're talking about strategy and philosophy of ministry. You're involved in church planting. You're in involved in these young men's lives because you give to the district and the district trains and supports and, and sends them out. You're involved in credentialing. This morning, uh, Brian Petrie came up and, and said, hey, what do I need to do to get licensed and ordained in the free church? You're involved in that because you give to the district and, and the district is involved in helping our guys be accountable to theological uh, purity. You're involved with 11 other churches in this district that are going through the same thing you are right now. I've been helping 11 churches in the transition process from uh, their current lead pastor to their, form, to their next lead, not their former lead, to their next lead pastor. Uh, you're helping uh, four churches that are going through some restructuring right now. They're trying to, to break some growth barriers and to do that they have to go through restructuring. So I'm working with the leaders, training them with that. You're helping two churches with, they're in conflict right now. Churches up in Wyoming are in conflict, not the ones in Colorado, you understand. <laughs> 14 guys, 14 pastors that I'm mentoring, 10 areas that I go to every month uh, for healthy church networks. Your pastor's involved in one of those. 
but uh, there's community there and there's uh, mentoring going on there, training going on there. Uh, one church is uh, trying to figure out, hey, w we've outgrown our building and our facility, but we don't want to build more. So they're trying to figure out how to do a satellite campus. So you're helping that church because of the district's involved in that conversation. Uh, nine churches just last week at our annual district conference were sharing uh, how they are working interdependently, churches working with one another to accomplish what on their own they can. So there's just a lot involved in the district work, and you're a big part of that. I just want to say thank you to this church for, for supporting me, for supporting the district. Have you found 1 Corinthians yet, anybody? Um, I would proclaim to you this morning, he's risen. He's risen, indeed. He's risen that was really weak. <laughs> we are two weeks away from Easter and already it's, well, yeah, okay, I guess he's, I mean, I don't know. Have you ever really doubted your faith? I mean, on Sunday morning, that's the appropriate thing to say, well, yeah, he's risen. But have you ever gone through those moments where you've wondered, is this all real? And if you've doubted, how would you proclaim to somebody else? How would you prove to them? How would you even prove to yourself? What's that conversation look like that Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he did? I'm in conversation with somebody right now. I'm partially Jewish by birth, and I, I've got a Jewish friend, full, full Jew, and uh, I'll, I'll call him Bob because... His name is Bob. <laughs> and, and he is trying to win me away from Christ, and I'm trying to win him to Christ. We've been having this conversation for about five years, and neither of us are making any progress with the other guy at all. But he conveniently says, well, Jesus could not be because we're not even sure if he was a historical figure. What would you say to that? How would you defend your faith with somebody like that? I mean, that's real convenient. If I don't want to believe it, I'll just say, well, I don't know if he even existed. And this whole resurrection thing, I mean, that's a pretty incredible story when you think about it. I mean, really? A guy comes back from the dead, he comes out of the grave, and have you thought about what is going to happen after the, the moment after you die. I, I mean, we're taught in Scripture that we will have resurrected bodies. I've got some questions about that. What's my resurrected body going to be like? I mean, if I get any say in it, I'd like a shorter nose, Lord. That would be nice. <laughs> and I really do miss my hair. I'd like that back as well. <laughs> I, I mean, so... Let's address that first question, did Jesus really exist? Most Christians that I have conversations with, if I play the advocate of the unbeliever, I can get three or four questions into this conversation and I can get them doubting because they can't defend their faith. We can't argue Jesus' existence from the New Testament because the agnostic or the atheist doesn't even accept the New Testament as historical. So, did Jesus even exist? Well, we have to go, 
basically to non-Christian literature. And non-Christian literature is pretty clear on this. There are, uh, I'm going to share with you four different uh, authors, two ancients and two that are more contemporary. If you, for instance, look at the writing of Flavius Josephus. Flavius Josephus was a Jewish historian and writer in the first century AD. Not a believer, not, not a believer in Christ. And in his historical work, and he's one of the most renowned and best known, he gives credence to, yes, Jesus of Nazareth did exist. He just doesn't believe that Jesus is who he said he was. But there's good historical evidence there. Let's go to a non-Jewish writer. Let's go to a Gentile writer. Uh, for instance, Publius Tacitus, who was one of the greatest Roman historians. Uh, he, was a, he was a Greek. He not only wrote about the historicity of Jesus, but he wrote in his history of the crucifixion of Jesus. He talks about Pontius Pilate, the accounts that we have in Scripture. He gives credence to all of that. So the ancients of our historical nature would say, well, well yes, he, he did exist. Let's go to some contemporary writers. For instance, Bart Ehrman, who is a secular agnostic. Not an atheist, but an agnostic. He writes this. He says regarding Christ, he certainly existed as virtually every competent scholar of antiquity, Christian or non-Christian, agrees. Or Michael Grant, who is a classicist. He states, quote, in recent years, no serious scholar has ventured to postulate the non-historicity of Jesus, or at any rate, very few. And they've not succeeded in disposing of the much stronger, indeed very abundant, evidence to the contrary. So, did Jesus really exist? Yeah, even the seculars would say, from a historical standpoint, Jesus existed. Now comes into question, what about this whole resurrection thing? Well, even scripture points out that this is something that is in question. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 16, if you have our Father's word open, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And he says this, apparently there was a question about the resurrection or he wouldn't have written this. He says, if the dead aren't raised, then even Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You're, you're still in your sins. Those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And when he says fallen asleep, that's a metaphor. He's not talking about what you're doing right now while I'm talking. Fallen asleep is a metaphor for death, okay? So those who've fallen asleep, those who've died in Christ, those who died believing this, they, they've perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Now Paul is writing to the Christians, the followers of Christ, in a place called Corinth, which is a Hellenistic, it's a, it's a Greek, it's a Gentile culture. Why is he even writing this? Well, it's 
This is written 30 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. Three decades after the death and resurrection of Christ. And apparently it's a question among the Christians in Corinth. Why? Because we tend to let culture and society shape our theology. We do that too. We let the thoughts of the culture shape our theological opinion. So let's look at the issue at the time of Christ. There were two major skeptics regarding the resurrection. There were the Greeks and there were the Jews. And the Greeks regarding the afterlife say there's no resurrection body. Let's go to the next slide if we could, please. Thank you. The Greeks say there's no resurrection body. To have a resurrected body is a bad thing. Think about it for a moment. Have you ever wished that you could kind of shed your body, get rid of it? Have you ever had a pain or an ache or an illness that was so bad that you said, I'd be nice if I didn't have a body? Have you ever been so sick you were afraid you were going to die? And then you got even more sick and you were afraid you wouldn't die? See, that's where the Greeks are in their thinking. And there are three groups among the Greek philosophers that say, well, no, there's no need. In fact, we don't like the idea of a resurrected body. The first are those who follow Homer. Now, Homer says, basically, when we die, our spirit becomes a disembodied, witless spirit to wander Hades for the rest of eternity. And if you're paying attention, that's bad news. <laughs> then there are the Epicureans. The Epicureans uh, have a bit of a different philosophy. They say that at death, basically, the soul disintegrates into random particles. And, and basically, that thought is annihilation. At, at the time that we die, life is over. A very popular philosophical position in 21st century thinking as well, by the way. So the Epicurean uh, the theology and philosophy is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will die. And when we die, it's gone. So if the other was bad news, this is like no news. And then there's a third philosophy of thought that follows that of Plato. And Plato is a bit like Homer with a twist. Plato agrees with Homer in the sense that when we die, uh, the, the body doesn't resurrect. The spirit goes on living in a place called Hades, but Hades for him is a good place instead of a bad place. <laughs> Get this, because we wander about in eternity without a body for the rest of eternity to discuss philosophy. <laughs> and all but two of you are laughing because most of us go, that would be really boring except for the two philosophers that are in here this morning. There's a reason you have no friends. <laughs> so for the Greeks, the idea is, why would you want a resurrected body? That's dumb. That's horrible thinking. Now, the Jews were different regarding the afterlife. 
All except one group of the Jews called the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. The rest of the Jews believe in the resurrection of the body. But here's what they believe. They believe that because we were made in God's image, that's their scripture, Old Testament, we're created imago Dei, that's the Latin term. Because of that, the body is not only worth creating, but it is worth preserving. And therefore, at the end of time, did you catch that? At the end of time, worth resurrecting. But their theology is there will be a resurrected body our soul will be re-engaged with that body all together at the end of time. The problem they had with Jesus' resurrection was he did it at the wrong time. <laughs> he did it in the middle of history instead of the end. Oh, and he did it by himself. So they have a problem with the resurrection. And they are in good company. Those in Corinth also were following this cultural philosophy and theology of the time. Verse 12, Paul writes, if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And by the way, if you doubt the resurrection, you're in good company. Not just 30 years later in Corinth was there a doubt. There was even a doubt at the time of Christ. I'm going to take you to another passage. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to go through Luke chapter 24 real quickly. You just heard probably a few weeks ago about uh, the, the women who came to the tomb on Sunday morning. This is why we have Easter sunrise services got to happen. Why is that? Well, in the Jewish tradition, once a body died, you were to anoint it with oils and spices and that type of thing. But the problem with Jesus' death was it happened just before the Sabbath began. The Jewish Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday and doesn't end until sundown on Saturday. So they take Christ's body, they place it in a tomb, they roll a stone over the tomb, and the, the women don't have the time to do the preparation of the body. They go early on Sunday morning to take care of what they could not conclude at the crucifixion of Christ. And they show up at the tomb and and, and there are a couple of angels sitting on rocks, checking their Facebook, I suppose. I don't know what they were doing. And the women show up looking for the body. And, and the angels say to them, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. And, and they're kind of, what? So they go back to where the disciples are hiding away because these guys have been following Christ for two and a half, three years of their life. They'd given up their careers. They'd given up their families. They're following Jesus. Now he's crucified. He's buried. What do we do now? They go back and they find these guys and they say, we went to the tomb and he's not there. And we saw angels and he's risen. And the disciples go, ee -oo, ee -oo. these 
women are crazy. They've been hanging out in Colorado with the product or something. I don't know. They didn't believe. Later in that same chapter, there are two guys walking on a road to Emmaus. They're identified in Scripture as Cleopas and the other guy. <laughs> How would you like to be mentioned in Scripture, but you're only mentioned as the other guy? You get kind of a... Anyway, they're having this conversation about everything that's happened, and they don't, they're confused as well. Yeah, there was Jesus of Nazareth, and, and, and some thought that he was going to come and save his people, and, and, and then there was this triumphal entry into... But then he got, and, and they're having this conversation, and Christ comes alongside them. The resurrected Christ comes alongside them. And he begins having a conversation with them, as was traditional in that day. And he said, what are you talking about? And they said, you're from out of town, aren't you? I mean, <laughs> you haven't heard what all that's happened? And he said, no, tell me about it. And, and, and they explain their confusion, confusion to him. And then Christ spends the better part of that day walking alongside these two guys and explaining to them from the Old Testament scriptures all that must happen, all that was predicted by the prophets. And by the time they get to the end of the day, they have turned from doubters to, you're him, and they get it. Or what about this disciple named Thomas? We call Thomas, Thomas the, how would you like that on your epitaph? You know, the one thing you're known for in life is you're the doubter. Thomas was not in the room when the women came. He, he showed up sometime later and he says, I won't believe it. Unless I can touch the nail prints in his hands and his feet, I won't believe that he's resurrected. I love God's sense of humor. Christ enters the room. I would have loved to have been there to take a selfie with Thomas at this point, see his expression. And Christ says, Thomas, unless you touch and feel, you won't believe? <laughs> How blessed are those who haven't seen and who do, who do believe. The issue today in America is our Western thinking. The American worldview, we are rationalistic. We are scientific. And we really don't believe in the supernatural. When we say, oh, well, you know, that, that, was, a, that was a miracle, we are not speaking of God stepped into history and changed what's scientifically impossible. That's not what we mean when we say that was a miracle. We say, well, that's unbelievable, but apparently it happened. In America, we think rationalistically and scientifically, and unless it can be empirically proven, we won't believe. In fact, if you were to take the globe and you were to chart all who are Christians around the entire globe, and then find the statistical center of where all of this figures out, where would you think the current statistical center of Christian belief is? All the Christians around all of the globe. Some of you would think North America, and you would be wrong. The current statistical geographic center of belief is in a place called 
Timbuktu. It's in Mali, Africa. Now, if you were to be asked, what continent do you think has the most number of Christians on it? Again, you might answer the North American continent. And again, you would be wrong. The European continent has more confessing, believing Christians. Now, granted, it's a much larger landmass and it's a much larger population. In fact, Christianity tends to abound more predominantly in cultures where the supernatural is accepted readily. The southern hemisphere of the globe, not the northern hemisphere. So what's the evidence of the resurrection? There are so many. But Pastor Jim said, we got this congregational meeting, and then we've got a potluck after that. And yeah, Greg, you've got limited time. So let me share three with you, okay? First, the belief of the doubters. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he says, he appeared, verse 5, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, died. He appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as one untimely born. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So even Paul, not only was a doubter, he was one who was persecuting those who were following Christ. He writes this to the church in Corinth 30 years later as historical fact which he understands they know. In other words, they will not dismiss this. They know that all of these who were their contemporaries, essentially, did give credence to the fact, yeah, he appeared to me, yeah, he appeared to me, yeah. So the first evidence that we have of the resurrection is the historical reality of the vast number that the resurrected Christ appeared to. And that's why those passages in the Synoptic Gospels following the resurrection of Christ that, that talk about these appearances are so important. The second, I believe, compelling evidence of the resurrection is how the culture of those who followed Christ were transformed. This was written off by the unbelievers as mass delusion. Oh, they're just all crazy. Okay, let's go with that argument. What do crazy people do, regardless of the culture, regardless, I mean, what is human nature? When people go crazy, how do they react? How do they respond? They basically withdraw from society. They isolate themselves. And any who approach them, they attack. That's how crazy people act. So if this was mass delusion, if they were crazy, how do you explain what the followers of Christ did. Instead of isolating and instead of withdrawing, they ran into society. They ran into culture. They were the ones who began taking the culture on with compassion and love 
and mercy. And they ran into poverty and oppression and sickness. And they nursed those who were ill. And they took care of the elderly. And when epidemics occurred, they showed up instead of running away like the rest. So not only all of those to whom Christ appeared, but how those who believed in the resurrection were transformed. And, and you, you look at that and you go, well, that's a different kind of crazy. Why would they do that? They did that because they no longer consider their current health, their current position and status on this earth to be of importance. By doing this, by the way, by following Christ, they gave up everything. Because now they were basically isolated by culture. They were the ones who would lose their jobs because they're following Christ and nobody else wanted to accept that. They were the ones who were basically marginalized by the culture. But they did it because the resurrection for them promised a renewal. They became transformed in their attitude and in their action in their culture. The third, and I think most compelling evidence for the resurrection is the uniqueness of the message. All other religions, and, and I'm making a broad generalization here, so there may be a couple of exceptions, but all other prophets of all other religions do not offer the one thing that the Christ of Christianity does. The Christ of Christianity says, yes, there is a creator, there is a God, and you are not him. That's a line from Rudy, for those of you who are paying attention here. You know, I know there's a God and I'm not him. But the difference is, all other religions, how do you get reconnected with God? Well, you live a good life, and you do justice, and you do mercy, and you... Now, that's a gross generalization, but basically all other religions offer no prophet who says, I will stand in your place, and I will reconnect you with the God of creation, and I will die in your place, and I will offer you eternal life, not on your merit, but because of my sacrifice. The uniqueness of the Christian message is the most compelling for me evidence of the resurrection. In fact, Paul says this. Verse 3. As he writes to the church in Corinth, he says, I delivered to you of first importance that which I also received. Remember, I was a doubter. I was one who even persecuted the Christians until God revealed himself to me in a Damascus Road experience, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So what? So what does the resurrection mean? Well, what it means for me is it raises my relationship with God out of hopelessness out of the grave to the fact that uh, 
he loves me so much, he died for me. He restored me in relationship with me. I now have eternal hope and transformation. All of us as humans, this is human nature, is we're looking for fulfillment, we're looking for purpose in life. And ask anybody outside of Christ their story. Just do this. I don't care if they're a Muslim or they're agnostic or they're, I don't care what they are. Ask anybody their story. How are you finding fulfillment and purpose in life? And if you listen carefully and long enough, you'll eventually be given the privilege, you'll earn the right to say, and how's that working for you? And I don't care if they are the wealthiest person on the face of this earth. I I don't care where they're at. They're going to say, well, I'm still not there yet. If they're really honest, they're going to say, yeah, there's still a problem here. In fact, the entire book of Ecclesiastes, that's what it's about. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, you know. And, and, and Solomon's looking for purpose and meaning in life. And it comes right back to, well, guess you've got to follow the God of creation. You see, without Christ, we live our life with the what-ifs, worry and fear. What if I lose my job? What if my house burns down? What if I lose my spouse? What if I lose one of my children? What if the plane, what if the, what if that? In Christ, that thinking is turned, it's transformed. Now I can live my life even if, even if I lose my finances, even if I lose a child, even if I lose a spouse, even if my house, doesn't matter, I still have eternal hope. That's what the resurrection does. Instead of fear, I now have a present and an eternal hope. I no longer have to live my life in hatred against others. I can now be compassionate for them because compassion has been shown for me. There's a whole transformation, not only in my thinking and in my heart, but also in my behavior. That's what the resurrection does for me. I no longer have to resent others who don't think the same as me or who even might uh, rail up against me, I can have empathy for for them because they are so lost, because they don't understand the love of God. They don't understand the hope of the resurrection. I, I no longer have to have judgment. I can have forgiveness. My behavior and life will be transformed if I really believe in the resurrection. Life doesn't just get better. I now have true life. In fact, I'd like you to stand. That's your cue. (laughs) And read with me this part of 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He is risen. He is risen 
Let's sing our doctrine together. <laughs>